Diagnosing the Modern Malaise by Walker Percy. From the first, I was emboldened to accept an invitation to speak here at Cornell during the Chekhov Festival, not because I am a Chekhov scholar, but because of my admiration for him and a strong fellow feeling which has something to do with certain superficial resemblances between us. He was a physician and a writer of fiction. I was a physician and am a writer of fiction. We both had pulmonary tuberculosis. It also cheered me to learn from the Ukrainian writer Potapenko that Chekhov, like me, was not at all keen on doctoring and was always glad of a, an excuse to get away from it. He did a bad job with his own illness, never took it seriously, even when he was dying of it. There the resemblances seemed to stop. Chekhov never wrote a novel. I never wrote a short story or play and don't intend to. One reason is that after reading a Chekhov play or short story, one tends to be intimidated. But as I thought about it and began to read further into Chekhov, it occurred to me that there were other concerns which I shared with him, concerns which it seems appropriate to speak of now because they are of even greater moment to us than in the 19th century. Again, I find myself coming back to his medical training, and accordingly, I hope it won't sound presumptuous to say that his great genius, it seems to me, brought a certain set of mind from medicine to literature, which served well in his case, and in my case has been indispensable. I refer to the diagnostic stance which comes so naturally to the physician, diagnostic at the outset, and in the end, one hopes, therapeutic. Part of the natural equipment of the doctor is a nose for pathology. Something is wrong. What is it? What is the nature of the illness? Where is the lesion? Is it acute or chronic? Treatable or fatal? Can we understand it? Does the disease have a name or is it something new? Accordingly, I shall use as my point of departure not the conventional view of Chekhov as a masterful portrayer of life as it is of people with all their faults and foibles, without judgment or ideology. I think rather of a less well-known Chekhov, Chekhov the literary clinician, the pathologist of the strange spiritual malady of the modern age. The Chekhov, in short, of those remarkable stories, A Dreary Story, and Ward Number 6. What is wrong with Nikolai Stepanovich in A Dreary Story? An eminently successful physician, scientist, professor, he has accomplished all he set out to accomplish. He placed his faith in science, and science served him well. All academic honors are his, and he is acclaimed throughout Russia. But what happens? Instead of enjoying his triumph, it turns to ashes in his mouth. The story ends with him alone in a hotel room in Kharkov, unable to love anyone himself included, unable to see the slightest value or meaning in life. Although Chekhov would, if he were here, be outraged or pretend to be outraged at the suggestion that his story might be about anything so grandiose as the spiritual plight of Western man or the loss of meaning in the modern world, for he had a healthy contempt for didactic writing and an almost fanatic vocation to show people the way they are. Yet how like the contemporary anti-hero of the so-called existentialist novel 
is Nikolai Stepanovich, who, if he were translated into the here and now, would be a Nobel Prize laureate at Cornell who chucks it all and finds himself alone and bemused in a holiday inn in Dallas. In his story, Ward Number 6, the psychiatrist finds himself a patient in a mental hospital. This switch pleases me particularly. In fact, I have carried the paradox one step further in a recent novel and raised it to a general principle that the so-called normal world is so crazy that only a patient in a mental hospital can recover a degree of perspective and stability. At any rate, what interests me in this connection is the extraordinary apposition in Chekhov of a scrupulous respect for life and reality in the concrete, a distaste for ideology, a refusal to bend fact to thesis. This on the one hand, and on the other, his recurring diagnostic approach to the ills of the modern world, which, after all, entails a certain degree of abstraction and generalizing and sciencing. In his story, A Case History, Korolyov, who seems to be Chekhov's mouthpiece, judges social problems from the point of view of the doctor accustomed to making accurate diagnoses of chronic ailments. The point is that now, almost a hundred years later, I would propose to you that this literary diagnostic method which Chekhov used sporadically is even more appropriate to the fictional enterprise of the late 20th century more appropriate than in other times, say, Shakespeare's England, or even Chekhov's Russia. In other times, the sense of wholeness and well-being of society, or at least much of educated society, outweighed the suspicion that something had gone very wrong, indeed. To the degree that a society has been overtaken by a sense of malaise, rather than exuberance, by fragmentation rather than wholeness, the vocation of the artist, whether novelist, poet, playwright, filmmaker, can perhaps be said to come that much closer to that of the diagnostician rather than the artist's celebration of life in a triumphant age. Something is indeed wrong, and one of the tasks of the serious novelist is, if not to isolate the basilisk under the microscope, at least to give the sickness a name, to render the unspeakable speakable. Not to overwork the comparison, the artist's work in such times is surely not that of the pathologist whose subject matter is a corpse and whose question is not what is wrong, but what did the patient die of? For I take it as going without saying that the entire enterprise of literature is like that of a physician undertaken in hope. Otherwise, why would we be here? Why bother to read, write, teach, study? if the patient is already dead. For in this case, the patient is the culture itself. Such terms as diagnosis and pathology are of course used analogically here, but I am using the word science deliberately and unequivocally in its original and broad sense of discovery and knowing rather than its current and narrow sense of the isolation of secondary causes in natural phenomena. For if I believe anything, it is that the primary business of literature and art is cognitive, a kind of finding out and knowing and telling, both in good times and bad, a celebration of the way things are when they are right, and a diagnostic enterprise when they are wrong.
The pleasures of literature, the emotional gratification of reader and writer, follow upon and are secondary to the knowing. Accordingly, if there has been any one thing I have wanted to leave with students, it is my conviction of the high seriousness, indeed the critical importance, of the profession of letters in this age, whether teaching, writing, scholarship, criticism, or indeed reading. In fact, as I shall presently suggest, the cognitive role of literature at the present time, its success or failure, may be more critical than the combined efforts of NASA, Caltech, and MIT. The strategy of the novel in the late 20th century is surely different from the fiction of the past 200 years. Literature in earlier times might be understood as an attempt to dramatize conflicts and resolutions, articulate and confirm values in a society where there already existed a consensus about the meaning of life and the world and man's place in it. Given such a consensus, a corpus of meanings held in common, it was possible for a novelist or playwright or poet to create a fictive world within which the behavior of the characters could be understood, approved, disapproved, and the reader accordingly entertained, edified, and in the case of great literature, his very self and his world confirmed and illumined by the work of the novelist. In short, any literature requires, as the very condition of its life, a certain consensus, an already existing intersubjective community within which both novelists and readers can traffic in words and symbols, myths and beliefs, which mean approximately the same thing for both writer and reader. Now, I think it fair to begin with the assumption, which seems fairly obvious, that, as the poet said, the center is not holding, that the consensus, while it might not have disappeared, is at least seriously called into question. The question which concerns us here, of course, is whether the deterioration of the consensus is so far advanced that the novel is no longer viable. Indeed, to judge from a good many contemporary novels, films, and plays, it often appears that the only consensus possible is a documentation of the fragmentation itself. The genre of meaningless has in fact become the chic property, not only of the cafe existentialist, but even of Hollywood. I would like to think that such is not the case. Rather do I believe that the vocation of the novelist is as valid as it ever was, but that it has become different, more difficult, more challenging, and more critical in its importance. Let me specify briefly what appears to be the nature of the change in the community in which we find ourselves and the correspondingly changed posture of the novelist. To state the matter as plainly as possible, I would echo a writer like Guardini who says simply that the modern world has ended, the world, that is, of the past two or three hundred years, which we think of as having been informed by the optimism of the scientific revolution, rational humanism, and that Western cultural entity which until this century it has been more or less accurate to describe as Christendom. I am not telling you anything you don't already know when I say that the optimism of this age began to crumble with the onset of the catastrophes of the 20th century. If one had to set a date of the beginning of the end of the modern world, 1914 would be as good as any, because it was then that Western man, 
the beneficiary of precisely this scientific revolution and Christian ethic, began, with great skill and energy, to destroy himself. Christendom began to crumble, perhaps most noticeably under the onslaught of a Christian, Soren Kierkegaard, in the last century. Again, I am not telling you anything new when I suggest that the Christian notion of man as a wayfarer in search of his salvation no longer informs Western culture. In its place, what most of us seem to be seeking are such familiar goals as maturity, creativity, autonomy, rewarding interpersonal relations, and so forth. To speak of the decay of Christendom is to say nothing of the ultimate truth of Christianity, but only to call attention to a cultural phenomenon and the symbols with which it was conveyed. What concerns us here is that, from the perspective of the novelist, literary attempts to revive traditional expressions of Christendom are seldom undertaken anymore. Even when they were, it was often with the sense of a nostalgic revival of a way of life, or else undertaken with the skill of a great novelist in portraying a belief which he did not necessarily subscribe to. I am thinking in particular of the Southern Agrarians and of Faulkner's Dilsey. But most contemporary novelists have moved on into a world of rootless and isolated consciousnesses for whom not even the memory and the nostalgia exist. As Lewis Simpson put it, the covenants with memory and history has been abrogated in favor of the existential self. But before speaking of the kind of novel which becomes possible in such an age, the postmodern or post-Christian, as it is often called, I should like briefly to characterize the age itself, or one or two traits of it, from the point of view of the novelist. For the latter is, like his predecessors, seeking some remnant of a common ground where he can gain sufficient footing so that he can see and tell, and where he hopes there will be others, other writers, other readers, who share, if not a consensus, a common belief of myth, at least a sense of predicament shared in common. Toward this end, it seems fair to describe the times not merely in conventional terms as a world which has been transformed by technology both for good and evil, the evil being, of course, the very real ugliness of much of the transformation and the very real depersonalization of many people living in such a world. What is not so self-evident yet of far greater import to the novelist is the more subtle yet more radical transformation of the very consciousness of Western man in an entirely unexpected way by the scientific and technological worldview. I am not talking about the mechanization and homogenization and dehumanization one hears often so about, though I would not quarrel with these descriptions. We are all familiar with an entire literature about the ennui of life in suburbia and the split-level nightmare. Yet this literature itself is generally even more boring than the life it portrays. Aside from the worth or lack of it in such novels, I cannot escape the suspicion of a degree of bad faith both in the novelist and in his characters that, in short, for all their complaints, neither of them would dream of changing places with the 19th century housewife 
or the low-paid 19th century novelist. No, the real pathology lies elsewhere, not in the station wagon or the all-electric kitchen, which are, after all, very good things to have, but rather in the quality of the consciousness of the novelist and his characters. I can only characterize this consciousness by such terms as impoverishment and deprivation and by the paradoxical language of the so-called existentialists, terms like loss of community, loss of meaning, inauthenticity, and so on, paradoxical because such deprivations occur in the face of strenuous efforts toward better consumership, more communication, a multiplication of communities, finding more meaningful relationships, creativity, and so on. The deprivation I speak of is both more radical and more difficult to define, but I'll try. Every age, we know, is informed by a particular belief or myth or worldview shared in common by the denizens of the age. 13th century Europe was certainly informed by Catholic Christianity. 17th century New England by Puritan Christianity. Present-day Thailand by Mahayana Buddhism. But we miss the point if we say that the Western world and the life of Western man has simply been transformed by scientific technology. This is true enough. But what has also happened is that the consciousness of Western man, the layman in particular, has been transformed by a curious misapprehension of the scientific method. One is tempted to use the theological term idolatry. This misapprehension which is not the fault of science, but rather the inevitable consequence of the victory of the scientific worldview accompanied as it is by all the dazzling credentials of scientific progress. It's the misapprehension takes the form, I believe, of a radical and paradoxical loss of sovereignty by the layman and of a radical impoverishment of human relations. Paradoxical, I say, because it occurs in the very face of his technological mastery of the world and his richness as a consumer of the world's goods. Like Nikolai Stepanovich in A Dreary Story, the moment of a victory in science seems to be attended by a strange sense of loss and impoverishment. In certain areas, such a surrender of sovereignty is not disabling. When something goes wrong in our technological environment, if something needs fixing, whether it is one's car or one's intestinal tract, we have reason to believe that they can fix it, they being the appropriate specialist. Our expectations are not unreasonable. Very few of us have the time or inclination to master carburetor repair or the physiology of the GI tract. But what happens when one feels in the deepest sense possible that something has gone wrong with one's very self. When one experiences the common complaint of the age, the loss of meaning, purposelessness, loss of identity, of values, and so on. Here again, I am the last person to suggest that psychiatrists do not have an important role, indeed an increasingly important role. The problem I am speaking of is only too well known to psychiatrists. What I do suggest is that a radical loss of sovereignty has occurred when a person comes to believe that his very self is also the appropriate domain of them, that is, the appropriate experts of the self. 
A typical case of such a surrender of sovereignty is the patient who is delighted when he can present his psychiatrist or analyst with a symptom or dream which fits the prevailing theory, or when he performs well in an encounter group. The patient is in effect saying, I may be sick, but how happy I am when I can present my doctor with a sickness or a symptom or a dream which is recognized as a classical example of such and such a neurosis. I am an authentic neurotic. But what has all this to do with the state of the novel? Strangely enough, it is this very misapprehension of the scientific method, its elevation to an all-encompassing worldview, which breaks new ground for the novelist and indeed opens the possibility of a new and critical role for the novelist of the future. Let me oversimplify this misapprehension and state it as briefly as possible. What I'm about to say is no secret to the scientist, is in fact a commonplace, but it is not generally known by laymen. The secret is simply this. The scientist, in practicing the scientific method, cannot utter a single word about an individual thing or creature insofar as it is an individual, but only insofar as it resembles other individuals. This limitation holds true whether the individual is a molecule of NaCl or an amoeba or a human being. There is nothing new or startling about this and nothing a scientist would disagree with. We all remember taking science courses where one was confronted with a sample of sodium chloride or a specimen of a dogfish to dissect. Such studies reveal the properties shared by all sodium chloride and by all dogfish. We have no particular interest in this particular pinch of salt or this particular dogfish. But perhaps we are a bit startled when we are told that this same limitation applies to psychiatry. In the words of Harry Stack Sullivan, perhaps the greatest American psychiatrist, to the degree that I am a psychiatrist, to the same degree, I am not interested in you as an individual, but only in you and your symptoms insofar as they resemble other individuals and other symptoms. Again, what has this to do with the novel? Perhaps I can state the connection best by describing my own discovery. As a person educated in science, as an admirer of the elegance and truth of the scientific method, and at the same time as a medical student undergoing psychoanalysis with the intention of going into psychiatry, it dawned on me that no science or scientist, not even Freud, could address a single word to me as an individual, but only as an example of such and such, a southern type, or neurotic type, or whatever. All very well and good, you say, but so what? But you see, there is a catch-22 here. The catch is that each of us is, always and inescapably, an individual. Unlike a dogfish, we are stuck with ourselves and have somehow to live out the rest of the day being more or less ourselves. And to the degree that we allow ourselves to perceive ourselves as a type of, example of, instance of, such and such a class of homo sapiens, even the most creative homo sapiens imaginable, to this same degree do we come short of being ourselves. As to the novel, I can only speak in terms of the discovery which led me to take up novel writing, 
a vocation for which I was otherwise singularly unqualified. For, of course, a novelist should be well-educated in the humanities, in literature, and if he is a Southern novelist, I am told that he is supposed to be saturated by the Southern tradition of folklore, yarns, storytelling, family histories, and such. If you want to be another Faulkner, you have to spend a good deal of time hunkered down on courthouse lawns listening to old-timers talk about the way things were. I qualify under none of these canons, having been born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, in a new house on a new golf course. The only stories I ever heard were jokes in the locker room. What did at last dawn on me as a medical student and intern, a practitioner, I thought, of the scientific method, was that there was a huge gap in the scientific view of the world. This sector of the world about which science could not utter a single word was nothing less than this, what it is like to be an individual living in the United States in the 20th century. This discovery had all the force of a revelation, at least for me, brought up, as perhaps most of us are, in the tradition of John Dewey and William James, the proposition of American pragmatism that science deals with truth and art deals with diversion, play, entertainment. Anyhow, some form of emotional gratification. But what are we to make of a man who is committed in the most radical sense to the proposition that truth is attainable by science and that emotional gratification is attainable by interacting with one's environment and at the highest level by the enjoyment of art? It seems that everything is settled for him, but something is wrong. He has settled everything except what it is to live as an individual. He still has to get through an ordinary Wednesday afternoon. Such a man is something like the young man Kierkegaard described who was given the task of keeping busy all day and finished the task at noon. What does this man do with the rest of the day, the rest of his life? But my question and my discovery was this. If there is such a gap in the scientific view of the world, for example, what it is to be an individual living in the United States in 1985. And if the scientist cannot address himself to this reality, who can? My discovery, of course, was that the novelist can, and most particularly the novelist. Oddly enough, it was the reading of two 20th century writers, Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky, who convinced me that only the writer, the existentialist philosopher, or the novelist can explore this gap with all the passion and seriousness and expectation of discovery of, say, an Einstein who had discovered that Newtonian physics no longer works. But before saying any more about the novel as a serious instrument for the exploration of reality, a cognitive instrument, let me take notice of what I take to be two traits of 19th century life which are peculiarly open to novelistic treatment and are also the consequence of an all-encompassing scientific technological worldview. One is the isolation, loneliness, and alienation of modern man as reflected in the protagonists of so many current novels, plays, and films. This alienation can be traced to a degree, I think, to this very surrender, albeit unconscious, of valid forms of human activity to scientists, technologists, and specialists. 
The other trait is the spectacular emphasis on explicit sexual behavior in novels and films. It is not difficult to show that one has a good deal to do with the other. The upshot of these two trends is often a novel or a film about a man or woman who, though isolated in the midst of 200 million Americans and rendered, so to speak, incommunicado, embarks on a series of sexual encounters which, at the end, leave the individual, much as we found him or her, still isolated, still surrounded, so to speak, by a cocoon of silence. This depiction of explicit sexuality is beset by all kinds of ambiguities. On the one hand, one can say fairly, I think, and I for one believe, that there is such a thing as pornography, and that there are a large number of bad writers and bad filmmakers who make a lot of money by writing novels and making movies designed to excite sexually the viewer and reader. I will say no more about pornography than that I think it has nothing to do with literature. And although I deplore pornography, the real difficulty is both more radical and has more serious consequences. The real pathology is not so much a moral decline, which is a symptom, not a primary phenomenon, but rather an ontological impoverishment. That is, a severe limitation or crippling of the very life of 20th century man. If this is the case, and if this crippling and impoverishment manifests itself often in sexual behavior, the latter becomes the proper domain of the serious novelist. What has happened, I think, is that with the ongoing impoverishment of human relations by a misapprehension of the scientific ethos which pervades the Western world, it inevitably came to pass that for many people, readers and writers, genital sexuality came to be seen as the only, the real, the basic form of human intercourse. It is a matter of what we come to see as real. By either reading or misreading Freud, we, the laymen and the laywomen, have come to believe that most forms of human relations and human achievement are surrogates of, sublimations of, and therefore, at some time remove from the real relation and the real energy, which is genital and libidinal. Take a film like Last Tango in Paris, which I happen not to think a very good movie. But I do not think it pornographic, either. In this film, two people who remain strangers throughout perform a series of sexual operations on each other, mostly in dead silence, and in the end, one kills the other. Two things happen, an impersonal sex and a dispassionate violence. Perhaps these are the only two things that can happen. A case might be made that, given a certain urban environment and an educated class of laymen alienated from each other and from themselves, only two real options remain, genital sex and violence, and perhaps the realest of all, death. Sex, violence, and death are real enough. But is anything else real? And if not, is the work of the novelist and filmmaker simply the documentation and cataloging of this impoverishment of the real in contemporary life? I suggest an alternative for the novelist, which is perhaps more radical, at least more venturesome and challenging than a mere documentation of isolation, depersonalized sex, and violence. If there is no such alternative, 
then we should have quit with Kafka, who limited human activity to a few moves to and fro in a dark burrow, an occasional encounter with another creature in the dark where one gropes, touches, feels, perhaps copulates, perhaps does not, then goes his own blind way. Or with Beckett, whose people, buried up to their necks and refuse, crack a few stale jokes to pass the time. What I suggest is that there lies at hand for the artist, especially the novelist, an instrument for exploring the darkness of Kafka's burrow or Marlon Brando's unfurnished apartment or Beckett's wasteland, an instrument in every sense as scientific and as cognitive as, say, Galileo's telescope or Wilson's cloud chamber. Indeed, this may be the only instrument we have for exploring the great gap in our knowing, knowing ourselves, and how it stands between ourselves and others. This instrument is, of course, art in general and literature in particular. The cognitive, exploratory dimension of art has always been present, but its discovering power is often masked in a stable society united by an ethos and belief held in common. When people already know who they are, their literature celebrates and affirms the already existing relationships and hierarchies of society. One thinks of Shakespeare's affirmation of the monarchy, of what constitutes a good king and a bad king, and the people's relation to each. But what is the function of literature in a period like this? a time when one era has ended and the new era has not yet come into being, that is to say, has not yet articulated itself, does not even know its name. One important function of fiction in such a time, at least as I see it, is exploratory. If Fielding's Tom Jones is a celebration of life in 18th century England, the fiction of our time is more like Robinson Crusoe, who has been shipwrecked on a desert island with important differences. This island is even stranger than Crusoe's. For one thing, it is overpopulated, yet many of its inhabitants feel as lonely as Crusoe. For another thing, Crusoe saw himself as an intact member of European Christendom, and even a desert island as a tissue of meaningful signs. Such and such an animal track spelled danger. Such and such a fruit meant, eat me. He knew what to do. But the castaway of the 20th century novel does not know who he is, where he came from, what to do, and the signs on his island are ambiguous. If he does encounter another human on the island, a man Friday, he has trouble communicating with him or her. Certainly, if two postmodern men met on an island today, like Crusoe and Friday, neither would dream of trying to convert the other for conversion implies there is something to be converted from and converted to. But perhaps some sort of sexual encounter is possible, perhaps a joint scientific venture. Certainly, murder is possible. But what else? Then, what is the task of serious fiction in an age when both the Judeo-Christian consensus and rational humanism have broken down? I suggest that it is more than the documentation of the loneliness and the varieties of sexual encounters of so much modern fiction. I suggest that it is nothing less than an exploration of the options of such a man. That is, a man who not only is in Crusoe's predicament, a castaway of sorts, 
but who is also acutely aware of his predicament. What did Crusoe do? He looked around. He explored the island. He scanned the horizon. He looked for signs from across the seas. He combed the beach. For what? Perhaps for bottles with messages in them. No doubt, he also launched bottles with messages in them. But what kind of messages? That is the question. The contemporary novelist, in other words, must be an epistemologist of sorts. He must know how to send messages and decipher them. The messages may come not in bottles, but rather in the halting and muted dialogue between strangers, between lovers and friends. One speaks, the other tries to fathom his meaning, or indeed to determine if the message has any meaning. Compare recent fiction with the community taken for granted in the traditional novel. For example, the reception described at the beginning of War and Peace, where Anna Pavlovna and her guests discuss the Napoleonic Wars. Conversation occurs, looks are exchanged, all perfectly understood in a community of shared meanings and assumptions about the nature of things. Even quarrels require sufficient common ground to be recognized as quarrels. People in Beckett's novels and plays don't quarrel. To change the island image, the community of discourse in the current novel might be likened to two prisoners who find themselves in adjoining cells as a consequence of some vague Kafka-like offense. Communication is possible by tapping against the intervening wall. Do they speak the same language? These quasi-conversations or non-conversations might be found in novels and plays from Kafka to Sartre to Beckett to Pinter to Joseph McElroy. If this view sounds gloomy, allow me to express a kind of perverse hope and preference. I don't know whether this is a symptom of my own neurosis or whether it says something about the way things are. In a word, I'd rather be a prisoner in a cell tapping messages to a fellow prisoner in the 20th century than be a guest at Anna Pavlovna's reception in Moscow in 1805. The challenge now is both more critical and more exciting than the defeat of Napoleon. For the challenge now is nothing less than the exploration of a new world and the recreation or rediscovery of language and meanings. The psalmist said, sing a new song. And, for a fact, the old ones are pretty well worn out. But to get back to my thesis, the diagnostic and cognitive role of modern fiction. When one age ends and the traditional cultural symbols no longer work, man is exposed in all his nakedness, which is uncomfortable for man, but revealing for those of us who want to take a good look at him, which is to say, at ourselves. And I take it for granted that, by the very nature of things and how things are known, it lies within the province of art, literature in particular, and not the natural sciences, to undertake this exploration. It is at this point that modern fiction cannot help but approach a kind of anthropology, a view of man abstracted from this or that culture, for that is indeed where he finds himself today, shocked like an oyster and beheld in all his nakedness and, I might add, uniqueness. Chekhov, being both a scientist and a superb artist, knew this better than most, that, with the method of science, one beholds what is generally true about individuals, but art beholds what is uniquely true.
It is no accident, moreover, that so much of modern fiction has converged with the movement of European philosophy, and that the same name, the much overworked term existentialist, has been applied to both. For both approaches, say Kierkegaard's in philosophy and Dostoevsky's in fiction, share a view in common, that of man, not mankind, but a particular man who finds himself in some fashion isolated from the world and society around him, a society which in both the philosophy and the fiction is viewed as more or less absurd, if not moribund. This man, then, is viewed as alienated from his culture, not as an abstraction, not as specimen homo sapiens alienatus, pinned like a dogfish to a dissecting board, but rather as an individual set down in a time and a place and a predicament. The subject of the novel may be outside his culture, but his predicament is no less concrete and acute than that of Prince Andrei Bolkonsky in the Battle of Borodino. He may be sitting alone in a cafe listening to the conversation of the bourgeoisie in Bouville, or she may be spinning around the interstates or hold up with a stranger in a motel like a character in a Joan Didion novel. In any case, what is being explored and set forth in this kind of serious novel is not primarily the hypocrisy of the bourgeoisie or the wasteland of New Orleans, but the fundamental predicament of the character himself or herself. Accordingly, what is being explored, or should be explored, is not only the nature of the human predicament, but the possibility or non-possibility of a search for signs and meanings. Depending on the conviction of the writer, the signs may be found to be ambiguous or meaningless, or perhaps a faint message comes through, a tapping on the wall heard and deciphered and replied to. The point is that fiction, of all things, can be used as an instrument of exploration and discovery, in short, of sciencing. To illustrate what I mean, I would like to conclude by giving a single example of fiction as a cognitive instrument for exploring an unknown terrain. The example is taken from a novel I wrote, not because I think all that highly of it, but because it illustrates the method I have in mind. This is the story of a confused young man, a southerner afflicted with recurring amnesia, a sense of disorientation, and assorted other complaints who finds himself living at the YMCA in New York, where he has spent several years and all his money in intensive psychoanalysis. One day he decides he has had enough of the analysis, rises from the couch, and bids his analyst farewell. Now, instead of exploring his own psyche, he sets forth on an actual journey, returns to the South and his point of origin. It is there, he feels, that there is some dread secret to be discovered something that happened, something he can't quite remember because he can't bear to remember. After a series of adventures, he finds himself at last standing in front of his father's house in a small Mississippi town, the house of his childhood. It is night. He watches the house from the darkness of the great oaks. It was there, he remembers, that his father used to walk up and down, listening to Brahms, reciting Dover Beach, his favorite poem, we're talking about the decline of morals and manners in the modern world. He, the father, has just won a victory over the Ku Klux Klan, yet he seems even sadder than usual. Suddenly, he, the son, remembers his father's suicide. 
that on just such a night, in this very place, under these very oaks, after listening to Brahms and reciting Dover Beach, his father had bade him farewell, gone into the house, and shot himself. Then was his father right in his despair? The son stood in the dark under the trees, looking at the house, and thought about it. Is there nothing, or is there something? Is there a sign? At this point, he does what might seem to be an insignificant thing. He is standing under a huge water oak, the same place where his father used to stand. Like Kafka's creature in its dark burrow, he can't see much, but his hand remembers something. It remembers the iron hitching post next to the tree. It remembers that the bark of the tree had grown around the little iron horse head atop the post. His hand explores. Again, his hand went forth, knowing where it was, though he could not see, and touched the tiny iron horse head of the hitching post, traced the cold metal down to the place where the oak had grown around it in an elephant lip. His fingertips touched the warm, finny, whispering bark. Wait. While his fingers explored the juncture of iron and bark, his eyes narrowed as if he caught a glimmer of light on the cold iron skull. Wait, I think he was wrong and that he was looking in the wrong place. No, not he, but the times. The times were wrong and one looked in the wrong place. It wasn't even his fault because that was the way he was and the way the times were and there was no other place a man could look. It was the worst of times, a time of fake beauty and fake victory. Wait, he had missed it. It was not in the Brahms that one looked and not in the old and sad poetry, but, he wrung out his ear, but here, under your nose, here in the very curiousness and drollness and extraness of the iron and bark that, he shook his head, that, he breaks off. He feels he's on to something, a clue or sign, but it slips away from him. I chose this passage because of its resemblance to the famous scene in Sartre's Nausea, in fact, it was written as a kind of counterstatement, where Roquentin is sitting in a park in Bouville and experiences a similar revelation as he gazes at the roots and bark of a chestnut tree. Sartre intended the scene to be a glimpse into the very nature of the being of things, and a very unpleasant revelation it is, described by Sartre by such adjectives as obscene, bloated, viscous, naked, de trop and so on. Will Barrett, too, sees something in the bark, the same extraness, as he calls it, gratuitousness, but for him it is an intimation, a clue to further discovery. And it is not something bad he sees, but something good. In terms of traditional metaphysics, he has caught a glimpse of the goodness and gratuitousness of created being. He had that sense we all have occasionally of being on to something important. As it turned out, he missed it. That was as close as he ever came. The point is that in a new age when things and people are devalued, when meanings break down, it lies within the province of the novelist to start the search afresh, like Robinson Crusoe on his island. Tree bark may seem a humble place to start, but one must start somewhere. The novelist or poet in the future might be able to go further, to discover, or rediscover, 
not only how it is with tree bark, but how it is with man himself, who he is, and how it is between him and other men.